0: There is no other king like him. There is no other king. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and take your seats and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in many passages, but Luke 19 is where we're going to be anchored through this. And of course, it's uh, Palm Sunday. And uh, the crowds in Jerusalem on the day that we know is Palm Sunday, lauded the arrival of a man that they believed was their king the legit king of Israel who would overthrow the Romans and who would reestablish the Davidic throne. This man on that day embodied hope during a very dark and difficult and desperate time for the people of Israel. And, and though we know the story, if you know the story of Palm Sunday and, and the whole week that follows, though you know the whole story... Still, the adulation of the people on that day was not misplaced, but was spot on. That triumphal procession, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, is also more than just a nice story that launched the Passion Week. It's relevant to us today. It speaks right into our own situation as we live our lives... In a world that is filled with defeats and setbacks and crushing circumstances. We're like those people who were lauding Jesus as he came into the city that day. We're looking for hope. We're looking for a win. We're looking for something to put our hands on that isn't going to end in defeat and discouragement. And Jesus, in essence, uh, through today's passage, is compelling us to come and join him in this triumphal procession, to be a victor with him, to celebrate all that he has done, to make it possible for us to triumph over sin and death, to be his sons and daughters, Not just that we would survive the current crisis. Not that we would just make it through the trial that's in front of us right now. But that we would overcome the greatest crisis that every human being faces. The condemnation of death as a result of our sin. That's what Jesus compels us, invites us to be a part of. And I would think that that's something that you'd want. I would think that every person would want to be part of the victory parade. Not just watching the parade happen, but in the parade. Celebrating the victory that has come to us through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to turn our attention to the passage of Scripture here in Luke 19. Beginning at verse 28 and we'll read to 40. And then I'll pray for us. Luke 19:28. So those who were sent away and found it, um, those who were sent went away and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice all the mighty works that they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest and some of the pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples and he answered i tell you if these were silent the very stones would cry out let's pray together father uh, we know that um, through the prophet isaiah you Told us the kind of person that you're looking for. Now, you're looking for humble people. You're looking for people who are contrite in spirit, broken over their sin. And you're looking for people who tremble at your word. And God, having just read your word, I pray, God, that we would come in reverential awe. God, we would come with fear before a holy God who has just spoken to us. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us. And, and God, we would tremble before your Spirit as he seeks to do his work of transforming us. God, do this work. You're the only one who can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? You with me here in the room? So all the glitches in worship? I think we should have a live band soon, don't you? Oh, okay, see? Now we know what it's about. <laughs> well, God bless you guys. Thanks for your patience with that. All right, here's what we're going after. In your notes, hvc.info is where you can find the notes. As a Christian, again, we're talking to Christians throughout this series. But if you're not a Christian yet, first of all, become one. But second of all, you can listen in. You can see what this is all about. But this is written to believers. As a Christian, here's what I'm going to say. I join Christ's procession celebrating final victory over sin and death And thus I am, first of all, on mission for Christ. This is what it's going to look like if you're in God's procession here. But first of all, we're on mission for Christ. Now, before we get to the mission part of this, let's understand exactly what's going on on that Palm Sunday, this this entry, this processional that's coming into Jerusalem. It's been rightly compared. If you're taking notes, jot down this reference. 1 Kings 1, 1 1, 32-48 and david's coming to the end of his life he's been the king and he knows even as he's lay there dying he knows that there's others who are pretenders to the throne. They want the throne. There's quite the possibility that there's going to be a coup d'etat. Some palace intrigue is going on. And David wants to establish that his choice for the throne is Solomon. So he arranges for Solomon to go out of the city, for David's donkey to be taken out, for Solomon to get on and ride into the city. And everyone's going to know when Solomon's riding into the city on a donkey, this is a power move by David to say, Solomon's the king. Okay, Solomon's the king. Now, if we were making a power move and we were choosing an animal to make a power move with, I doubt we would use a donkey. We we might use um, an elephant. That'd be a power move. We might have a lion, though you don't ride those. Uh, You you might uh, have a war horse. Would be a great way to make a power move. But you certainly wouldn't use a donkey. But listen, this was super intentional. And this is the way the Jewish kings, the kings of Israel would ride into the city because it signified two things. One, the peace of God, that they wanted to reign over this city. And second of all, their complete dependence on God for their power. That the kings of Israel weren't going to be like the kings of other nations. That they were going to depend completely and wholly on God. And so Solomon's riding in, and everyone knows what this means. Solomon's going to become... The king. Now, set that aside. That procession definitely. What Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday is invoking that picture from First Kings chapter one. But in addition to that, the Apostle Paul talks about a triumphal procession in in his letter to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians two fourteen. We'll put this verse up on the slide for you. Uh, But thanks be to God. This is what um, this is what Paul writes here. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us speaking to Christians now, always leads us in triumphal procession. That's a very specific phrase. And Paul's using Paul's writing to believers who are in Corinth, which is in Greece, which is in the Roman Empire, and it has very much a Roman culture to it. And he's using this very well-known cultural, political, historical, military tradition to help his readers grasp grasp something about the triumph of Christ and what that means to us as believers. A year ago, I read um, this, you know, you know how I love history, and I read this biography of Julius Caesar, and in that, it talked about the triumphus, what they called the triumphus. And the triumphus is this triumphal procession that Paul's talking about in Second. Corinthians. In fact, we have an art piece here. Uh, The artist is Giovanni uh, Bellori. This art piece is in Villanova University in Pennsylvania, and it depicts a triumphus, a triumphant entry. The Encyclopedia Britannica fills in some gaps for us here. It was a ritual procession that was the highest honor bestowed upon a general in the Roman Republic to triumph, that is to say, to have the parade. The triumphus was a parade. The man was required to earn this parade. He was required to have won a major battle. The parade passed through the city along streets adorned with garlands and lined with people shouting, low triumph is what they would shout, low triumph. Key officials came first in the procession, followed by musicians, the sacrificial animals, the spoils of war, the captured prisoners would be in chains. Then riding in a chariot festooned with laurel, the victorious general wore the purple and gold tunic and toga, holding the laurel branch in his right hand and an ivory scepter in his left. The soldiers marched last singing and they would make their way to the temple of Jupiter where they would make a sacrifice in gratitude to their God for all of that. That's the triumphal procession. And when Paul uses that here to speak to the church about our victory, that's the image that he's invoking for them. And by using this example, he's paralleling to Christ and he's saying, the battle is over. We're having the triumphant parade. We're having the procession to show, we're showing the spoils of war because the war is over. The victory parade, in other words, is happening. That, in essence, in the spiritual realm, that's the triumphal procession that we see on Palm Sunday. Now, it's interesting because... On the timeline, when Jesus is coming into the city in Jerusalem, it's Sunday morning, but he wouldn't be crucified until Friday. He wouldn't be raised from the dead until the following Sunday, that that eight-day period of time. So it's almost like the victory parade is happening before the events of the actual victory. And so in a way, this, this triumphal entry into the city... This is this is prefiguring the victory that's already gained. Now I love this stuff. I love talking about time, and um, I don't know how many of you really love those movies that have time travel in them and all the shifting stuff. Just raise your hand if those are the kind you like those kinds of movies, and and um, and I love that Inception, that kind of stuff, Interstellar, where they're playing with all of this and understanding time, but. Um, Listen, all of these ideas come from the Scriptures. The, the idea that God stands out of time is right in the Scriptures themselves. Because time is a creation. You just take a look at Genesis 1-5. Time is a creation of God. There was a, if I can say it this way, there was a time when time didn't exist. Before Genesis 1-5, time did not exist God stands outside of that time. And so all of these events, we see them in a linear fashion, but they didn't exactly happen that way. In fact, I love the phrase that comes to us out of uh, Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13.8 says that um, all of this, everything that we're talking about, happened, here's the phrase, before the foundation of the world. So before Genesis 1.5, before Genesis 1, before the creation, before the foundation of this world that we live on, all of these things already happened. And so for God, the fact that the victory parade happened on Sunday and the crucifixion on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday, none of that means anything to God. It means everything to us, but it means nothing to God. It all just happened before the foundation of the world. Now back to the primary text now. Luke nineteen twenty-eight. Now we're going to talk about mission. We understand what's going on, this victory parade. It's happening on a Sunday. There's a parallel to something going on with Paul, the triumphal procession. Luke nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and throughout his ministry, this was the thing for Jesus. It was going to be all about Jerusalem. The culmination of the entire mission and ministry of Jesus Christ was going to happen eventually in Jerusalem. He does all this ministry in Galilee, he goes to Samaria, he's in all these places, but everyone knows it's going to all come down to Jerusalem. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he was resolved, he was focused, he was determined that everything he did was intentionally done so that they would land at the end of it all in Jerusalem. This was his plan, and the mission was clear from the start and all the way through. And by the way, it still is. It's still clear. No Christian should ever be fuzzy on what the mission is prior to his ascension to heaven just before he ascends into heaven this is after the crucifixion and resurrection he says to his disciples he's he's being lifted up before him and he, and before them and he says you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth that's the mission and and there's there's nothing unclear about that. We are to be his witnesses. The mission that Jesus Christ was fulfilling in this world to come and proclaim good news, that's now our mission. He handed it to us as Christians and as the church. And in fact, as Paul goes on to describe that triumphal procession, that victor's parade, listen to what he says. This is in 2 Corinthians 2 14 through 16. listen listen to this in terms of what the mission actually is. He had said, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and notice through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Doesn't that sound like Acts 1-8? Doesn't that sound like the mission? Just stated in this beautiful metaphorical way, but he's going to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. That's what he's doing through us, Paul says. For we are the aroma of Christ to two groups of people. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance of, uh, from death to death and to the other, other a fragrance from life to life. Our lives are to be exuding the aroma of Christ. And some people are going to find that lovely and inviting and want it for themselves. And some people are going to smell that and go, that's repulsive. I don't want it. Stay away from me. So we're in this procession, we're victors with Christ. We're celebrating the triumph over sin and death and people are watching the parade and the aroma of Christ is coming off of us. Some being drawn in, others were a stench too. And so the question then is, I could say it this way, are you on mission for Christ? Or I could say it this way, do people smell Jesus on you? For good and bad, For good and bad, do people smell Jesus on you? They can smell Jesus on you in your acts of service. They can smell Jesus on you in whether or not you love people. They smell Jesus on you in in whether or not you take the high ground whether you're living a holy life in pursuit of Christ. They smell Jesus on you in the words that you speak. They smell Jesus on you in the attitudes that you show. They smell Jesus on you in your generosity. They smell Jesus on you in your selflessness. So are you the aroma of Christ? Is that what they smell on you? They should. So, As a Christian, I joined Christ's procession, celebrating final victory over sin and death. So I'm on mission for Christ. And secondly, I'm under the authority of Christ. Now, the authority of Christ is seen in the strange instructions that Jesus gives his disciples. And they're very quick unquestioning obedience in doing them. So when they got close to this city, this is verse 29 uh, to 31, Jesus sent two of the disciples into the village. They found a colt there. He's telling them, you're going to find a colt. No one's ever been on the colt. Just a young donkey he told them, untie that, bring to me. And then again, you just can kind of see here where um, if you're a Star Wars fan, you can see where George Lucas got some of his ideas from because there's kind of like a Jedi moment here, right? So they go and get the donkey and they're untying it. And, and the owners, who should really care that someone's taking their donkey, all the disciples say is, Jesus needs it. And they go, huh, okay. It's kind of like a Jedi trick right there. See, Lucas has no original ideas of his own. He got them all from the Bible. So, so they do this. Sure enough, we read about it. Here, they do all of this. They take the donkey exactly as Jesus said. The whole thing works out. And so they're obeying Jesus in these strange instructions that he's given to them. Kudos to the disciples for simply hearing the word of God and doing it. And kudos to anyone who simply hears the word of God and says, you know what? I need to do that. I'm not doing that. I need to do that. Or I am doing this thing and the Bible says I shouldn't and I should stop. Kudos to anyone who just hears the simplicity of the word of God and says, you know what? I just have to obey that. And when we do that, it may seem like such a simple thing, but we never know what God is actually doing in the world through our simple obedience. We never know the greater plan. We can't see the bigger things that God is actually doing in the world. We don't know what our submission to his will is accomplishing in the greater plans of God. And in this case, the disciples, they didn't realize that just going and getting a donkey and bringing it back to Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy that had been spoken by, by, by Zechariah hundreds of years prior. In fact, look at this up on the screen. Zechariah 9.9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and what does it say read it out mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey hundreds of years prior and it's fulfilled in this moment when the disciples go and get this donkey i mean this is god saying to israel and to the world as david did with solomon this is god saying this is the king this is the one right here this is the king he's the messiah He's the one you've been waiting for all this time. He's the authority. And their obedience, the disciples' obedience in those those moments, and doing that very simple thing, advanced God's plan and made that declaration. Now, your submission to Christ's authority, however however strange it might seem, however simple, however non-impactful it might seem to you, Your obedience advances the plan of God. But the challenge for us today, and I'm not talking to unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, we expect you to disobey Jesus. But if you're a believer, there's an expectation that you're going to obey what the word of God says and what God's will is. But we live in a culture today. We live at a time when the king is not a government. Okay, governments come and go. We live in a democracy. We even pick our governments. It's not, the authority is not government. The authority is not the charter of rights and freedoms. The king today, listen, is autonomy. Autonomy is king. Personal autonomy is what rules the day. No one tells me to do anything. I'm in control of my own life. I call the shots. We live in a day when autonomy is king. Self-rule. In fact, the word autonomy, let's break that down. If you like the little Latin studies here, auto nomos, auto auto self, nomos, law, self-law. That's what autonomy means. I'm a law unto myself. But that's not flying with God. And this is an important discussion again for believers because there are many believers who give lip service to being devoted followers of Christ but who are still acting autonomously. Many Christians who play fast and loose with the Word of God. In fact, when I'm autonomous, just if you're taking notes, jot down these three things. Here's, the, here's three characteristics of those who are autonomous. And again, I'm speaking to Christians who are giving into the temptation to self-govern rather than be governed by the word of God. First of all, when I'm autonomous, first, I have a casual relationship with the Bible. I have a casual relationship with the Bible. I hear the word preached. Man, that was a good sermon, and walk away, as, as the Bible says, I walk away and kind of forget anything I heard. Or, or I hear the word preach, and I get into my small group, and I argue the point of the message, and I argue it not because it's a good thing to question the Bible, to be a Berean and to interrogate it and learn more. I don't come at it from a pure heart. I come at it from the perspective that I'm autonomous, and I don't want the Word of God speaking to me that way. I argue the point so I can justify the ungodly decisions that I'm making in my life. Or, or another way we have a casual relationship with the Bible is, yeah, I faithfully read the Bible every day. I read it. I give myself the check mark, and I move on, and I don't let it penetrate into my heart or think at all about how it ought to change things. So that's the first one. When I'm autonomous, I have a casual relationship with the Word of God. Secondly, I compartmentalize my life. I just have all these boxes. So it's just, I'm in the Sunday morning box. Sunday morning box. Grab the Bible, let's go to church. We go to church, we do worship. As soon as we're done it, out of the church box, out of the Sunday box, out of the Jesus box, and into another box. It can't be any boxes for Christians. Or, or, or I have, uh, you know, I have uh, the, the uh, compartment that is my home life, and I have the compartment that is my work life, and I'm not the same person. I give the appearance of living for Jesus at home, but not at work. And I'm failing to see that the Christian life is a 100% all-in proposition. Here's a third one. When I'm autonomous, I have a casual relationship with the Bible. I compartmentalize my life, and I misunderstand grace. You see, because we know some things about God. We know that that God is loving. We know that God is gracious. We know that God is merciful. We know that God is um, willing to shower us with blessing. We know that God is forgiving. We know all of these things, and knowing that God is going to forgive us, we can allow ourselves to fall into sin or to keep a pattern of sin going in our lives because we don't, you know what? God's going to forgive me. Jesus is so kind and so loving and so forgiving and he's going to pour his grace out on my life. But bear in mind, God is gracious and forgiving, but bear in mind that God also disciplines his children. If you've ever been disciplined by God, you never want that to happen again. Sometimes his discipline can go all the way to a Christian being taken from this life. You don't want to take that risk. Not to mention that the Bible makes it clear that continual willful sin, I know I have this sin, I don't want to do anything about it, I don't have a conscience about it anymore, I'm just letting it happen. That continual willful sin may be an indicator that you're not actually a believer. So that's a challenge. We can't be autonomous. Jesus riding into Jerusalem that day was a power move by God, a declaration that Jesus is on the throne, that he is the king, he is the only king, and the question is, are you his subject or not? Here's a third one. Christian, are you savvy to the fickleness of, of people. I mean, the disciples were super excited on that Sunday morning, but Jesus tells us, and this is in uh, John, sorry, John tells us in John 12 16, they did not understand these things. So they're all excited. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. This is the thing they've been waiting for. They're lining the roads, they're celebrating him, they're shouting Hosanna, they're excited. They did not understand these things. They didn't know what they were celebrating. Back to our principal passage, Luke 19, 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. In fact, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak of cloaks. John's gospel alone talks about, even though we call it Palm Sunday, it's only John's gospel that talks about that. They took branches of palm trees. John also tells us in, in John 12:18, this, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So it's all about a sign. It's not really about surrender to Jesus. It's just that Jesus did this sign, and everybody wants a sign. Everybody loves a show. Everybody wants a miracle. Everybody wants to be near someone who's successful. Everybody wants a miracle for themselves. They don't even just want to see it. They want that blessing to come back on them. So this is all about a sign. And they're thinking, of course, because their biggest challenge is that they're under Roman rule. So they're thinking Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. This is a political military thing. Verse 37, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, so this is more than the 12, this is like everybody that's been following him, men and women, everyone, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Notice, it's all about the signs for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they shout, and this comes from Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now Luke's the only one who doesn't record that they use the word Hosanna. So that appears in Matthew, Mark, and John, that he used the word Hosanna. And in John 12, 13, they're shouting this, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. We've been waiting for this moment. Here comes our king. Save now. Save us now. Give us salvation. And obviously it points to his messianic royal claim. So even though they don't have it right, even though their motives aren't right on, they have some of it right. They're excited about the king in this moment, but of course we know how it goes off the rails in the next few days. And Jesus knows even as he rides on the back of that donkey, as, even as he's hearing all of these accolades being put on him this celebration that's all around if he knows that the mood is going to change in this series we're talking about the crises of the christ and this is the crisis for him he knows that they don't mean it he knows that in mark 14 10 they all left him and fled The people were not seeing it exactly right, and their hearts were fickle, and their motives self centered, and their foresight limited to what they could see right in front of them in that moment. It was, an, it was a, a, a moment of, What can you do for me now, Jesus? And He already knew that they would not stand in the face of the pressure. In mere days, they would all cave in. You know, don't be that person. Don't be that person who's like all excited about a thing in the moment when everyone else is excited about it and then who cuts and runs as soon as it gets hard. Don't be that person. Don't be fickle. Don't be the person who wants to be in the victory parade but doesn't want to gain the victory, be in the battle, win the war. That's what happened in Jerusalem, a whole city full of fair-weather friends who lauded Jesus as he arrived. But then by the end of the week, in that group of people, some were calling for his crucifixion and for Barabbas to be released. Some were merely ambivalent, turning their backs. I have nothing to do with that. And some in great fear had abandoned him completely and were in hiding. Instead, we should see the fickleness of people. And we should fully commit ourselves to serving the king. We should devote our lives to his service. We should worship him with abandon. Not just with our lips, but from the heart. My reading over the last several weeks has been in the prophet Isaiah. And I was reading again this morning just in Isaiah 66, right? The last chapter. And reminded again in this last message in the prophet Isaiah, reminded again that the very system of worship that God had set up had become abhorrent to God because the people were doing the sacrifices and going to the festivals and doing everything they had to do and saying the prayers that God had laid out for them to pray. But God hated all of it, hated it. That all of the religious ritual meant nothing Because their hearts weren't in it. People were fickle. It may mean, if we're going to have this kind of devotion to Christ, it may mean that sometimes we have to go alone. And I think about that old chorus that we've sung I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, though none go with me. Still, I will follow. Amen. Still, I will follow. We need to be savvy to the fickleness of people. One more now as a Christian, I joined Christ's procession celebrating final victory over sin and death. Thus, I am holding to the truth under intense pressure. Now, what Jesus did that day, if I haven't mentioned it already, was very provocative to the ruling authorities, it presented, in fact, the religious leaders with a a dual problem, a massive problem. Uh, Jesus claimed to be the King and Messiah had huge theological implications for the people of Israel, but then beyond that, it created a political crisis in that Israel was ruled by the Romans, and any kind of dissent or anything that smelled of rebellion would be met in a crushing way by the Roman political um, military overlords. And so in verse 19 of John 12, John twelve nineteen, the Pharisees said to one another, they're, they're looking at this whole scene. These people lauding Jesus, him coming in on the donkey. They know what it means. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. All of the efforts that the Pharisees had been putting in had done nothing to slow the, the, the spread of this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they went on to say, look, the world has gone after him. The city is in uproar. What are we going to do? The leaders were losing control of the people, and that was going to result in a harsh reaction from the Romans, especially if someone was claiming to be king and challenging the power of the emperor. Now what's curious is that up until this moment in his ministry, Jesus had played down who he was. I mean, you know the stories in the gospel where he would heal somebody, and then he'd say to the person, don't tell anybody. Just go home. don't tell anybody. Jesus was trying to play things down. But now here in this moment. He's not playing it down anymore. He accepts. And receives their very. Public worship of him. This messianic announcement. The time had come. According to Jesus now. The time had come for the world. To meet their savior. But now these Pharisees. These religious leaders. They have a problem. So in Luke 19.39, some of the Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop saying this. You're not the king. They shouldn't be saying you're the king. But then Jesus said to them, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Inanimate objects would then begin to cry out, if God himself told his disciples to stop worshiping him. That's an outrageous claim. That rocks would sing. That rocks would worship. In fact, when you read stuff like this in the gospel, it's just an uncomfortable truth. Could that ever really happen? Well, God said it. Jesus said it. And everything we really believe about Jesus is uncomfortable for those who do not believe. The incarnation. God and man. 100% of both are together in the incarnation. The virgin birth is uncomfortable. The miracles that Jesus did. Do we believe these? Of course we do. They're uncomfortable to talk about today. The teaching of Jesus The Sermon on the Mount, which presses us so hard about what it means to be a Christian. The sinlessness of Jesus that he faced temptation but didn't cave in. The prophecies that were fulfilled are uncomfortable. The crucifixion and what it means is uncomfortable. The resurrection of Christ is uncomfortable. The ascension of Christ is uncomfortable to believe. That he's going to come again in glory is uncomfortable to believe. That he is the only way to God flies in the face of what this world would believe if they want to acknowledge there is a God. That not everyone is going to heaven is uncomfortable. The reality of hell is uncomfortable for us. This is where we live today, and this, this represents the intense pressure that we feel as Christians in believing these truths, the pressure to give up these old-fashioned beliefs and no one believes that anymore. Instead, you need to embrace enlightened thinking or you need to recognize that truth is relative, that every person has their own truth. And in the face of this opposition, this rejection of the truth, we must now more than ever be standing with that procession, waving our palm leaves and laying our cloaks on the ground and shouting, Hosanna, save now. Save us now. Pleading with God because this world needs this message like it never has before. Because this world offers nothing but despair and false hope. It's time for Christians to stand To join the procession, to laud the king, and to plead with him to save now, to declare there is no other king like him. There is no other king. Amen? Let me pray. Father, you are, as we've already said in this message, gracious and kind and forgiving. And God, you have given those of us in this room who have that hope of Christ. You've given us an abundant life. You've given us the hope of eternity, God. And I pray that we would join you in this triumphal procession. That we would laud you as the King. And that would affect every part of our lives. This world needs that. This world needs us to be the aroma of Christ to them so that they would hear this message and respond to Christ. Father, I pray for those who are watching on the live stream on demand or here in the room, God, that if they have not yet given their life to Christ, they would do that. And for all of us as believers, God, that we would be quick to repent, quick to stand with you, quick to obey, continue that transforming work in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit.